Section 1 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 8, January 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Gold Coast, Ashanti, and Kumasi by George K. French. The Guinea coast lies between the southern boundary of Sierra Leone and the delta of the tortuous Niger in West Africa. It is a part of Africa that abounds in dark tradition and tragedy, and romance has never dared to trespass on its forbidding shore or penetrate its deadly swamps and jungle. It is a place where the fiercest and most selfish passions of man, white and black, have vented themselves for four centuries. The white slaver came here for his merchandise. The black slave owner ashore supplied the trade, and if his barracoons were empty when a cargo was needed, a quantity of trade goods, rum, gin, cloth, and trinkets, accomplished his purpose in a moment. It was in very truth a survival of the stronger, and one native was as eager to sell his brother as he was to collect his pay from the native procurer the old grain coast is comprised within the republic of liberia while the ivory coast now french territory is adjacent on the southeast the slave coast extends from the niger some two hundred miles west to the gold coast the latter section of the guinea coast lying between the old ivory and slave coasts a hundred years ago these distinctive names were applied by all geographers but today only the gold coast is to be found on our maps three hundred and fifty miles of the latter coast belong to great britain while the interior borders of the colony of which this sea coast forms one boundary stretch away toward the north as far as the ashanti country since the recent taking of kumasi and the downfall of the ashanti confederation the hinterland of the colony has been extended a hundred miles further to the north between the eastern and the western boundaries of the gold coast the view presented from the sea is varied and picturesque the shore is often girt with great rocks over which the surf breaks with tremendous force again a sandy beach fringed with tall spectral palms which stand like mute sentinels guarding the approach to the forlorn shore separates the ocean from salt lagoons and swamps of immense area while in places the mouths of rivers reveal themselves by the presence of dangerous bars over which the waters boil and seethe affording fair warning of their existence to anxious mariners the villages of the natives are discernible at frequent intervals and a fair appreciation of architectural taste is evinced in the construction of their huts rectangular houses of swish or adobe sometimes with a second story take the place of the rude huts of the grain and ivory coasts and among these are interspersed the more pretentious residences of european traders and forts which have been erected from time to time during the past four centuries as early as the middle of the fourteenth century the gold coast was known to the european world but not until fourteen seventy one when the portuguese navigator juan de santarem and pedro escobar touched at a point on the coast which they called oro de la mina was there any definite knowledge concerning it 
1481, a large fort was erected at Oro de la Mina, or Elmina, as it is now called, by the Portuguese, and it stands today in an excellent state of preservation. The Dutch captured it in 1637 and held it until 1872, when it was transferred to the British. Other stations on the Gold Coast established between the end of the 15th and the middle of the present centuries by the Portuguese, Spanish, Danes, French, Dutch, and Brandenburgers have finally become British possessions either by conquest or purchase. Cape Coast Castle is eight miles east of Elmina. While the latter was under Dutch control, it was the port of the Ashanti country, but since the expedition against King Quoffy, in 1873-74, to 74, when a road through the dense forest was constructed to Kumasi, from Cape Coast Castle, the trade has followed this route, and thus the latter place has developed into a town of some commercial importance. Palm oil, palm kernels, ginger, gold dust, mahogany, monkey skins, cam wood, and rubber are exported in enormous quantities to England and the European continent from this port, in exchange for rum, gin, cloth, trinkets, and other articles of European manufacture. The castle from which this last-named town takes its name was built by the Portuguese and taken by the Dutch in the 17th century, but since 1666 it has been a British possession. It is a spacious, strongly fortified stone building, and back of it, at a distance of two miles, rise a series of heavily timbered hills, which have an altitude of eight or nine hundred feet. Between the fort and these hills lies the town. Accra, the seat of government of the Gold Coast Colony, is about sixty miles east of Cape Coast Castle. There are numerous smaller towns and trading posts along the coast, but their European population is limited to two or three traders and an occasional missionary. The shore is difficult of access, as is the case along the entire Guinea coast. Sandbars block the mouths of rivers, and harbours are lacking. Consequently, passengers and cargo are discharged in boats through a heavy surf on a frequently dangerous beach, and many human life and many a ton of valuable merchandise have been lost in the efforts to effect a landing. These surf boats are English-built, of heavy timber, are twenty-eight feet long, six feet beam, and have long overlapping bow and stern, in order that they may surmount and not cut the breakers. A boat's crew is made up of eleven men and a coxswain. The latter steers with an ordinary long-bladed straight oar or sweep, while the crew sit on the gunwales of the boat and propel it with paddles, the blades of which are fashioned not unlike a trident. The crew are almost naked, a loincloth being the only attempted clothing. They sing lustily while paddling, bestowing fulsome praise on the particular individual who has engaged them, and chanting vigorously of the amount of dash, equivalent to the bakshish of the East, which he will probably shower upon them when they have landed him in safety. The population of the Gold Coast Colony, excluding the tribes of the Ashanti Confederation, is roughly estimated at two million, of whom only about one hundred and fifty are Europeans. There are many different tribes of natives, speaking various languages or dialects, but all belonging to the Negro race. The tribes of the Fante Confederation, who line the coast from Elmina to Accra, deserve special mention as having from time immemorial 
been brought into close contact with the British. Of the natives who have migrated to the colony within the last fifty years, the most important are the Mohammedan houses from the Niger district of the interior, who man the ranks of the military police, and the crewmen from the coast to the west. The latter are a most useful element, but are somewhat unstable, as they invariably return to the crew coast as soon as they have earned a small competence. Most of the natives are still pagans, but the presence of Christian missionaries among them for the last fifty years has at least resulted in their modifying their fetish worship and savage rites. The Mohammedans on the Gold Coast are, with the exception of the houses, mainly traders, and they are found in the larger settlements on the coast and along the trade routes of the interior. The Fantis are an inoffensive, peace-loving, happy-hearted race who readily succumbed to European aggression, but have been exceedingly loath to accept its civilization and Christianity. In common with the other natives of West Africa, with the exception of the houses and the crewmen, the Fanti is shiftless and will work only when it is absolutely necessary. Centuries of life without a wand that nature did not lavishly supply have quite spoiled him for the advantages of civilization and its accompanying responsibilities, and it is no easy task to convert him to the ways of European life, yet he is tractable and readily governed and the colonial official and trader find no great difficulty in utilizing him for many purposes. He has a full appreciation of justice, is honest, hospitable to strangers who approach him for no evil purpose, and has an absolute faith in the superior beauties and advantages of Fantiland, though to the white man it seems the dreariest and most hopeless place in the world, and official statistics prove it to be the most deadly spot on the face of the earth for the foreigner of every nationality. In the year 1895, for instance, the average European population of Cape Coast Castle was 32. Of those, 17 died during the first two months of the year from the malignant fevers which plague the coast at all seasons. It is true that, as a British colonial report apologetically states, it was a bad season on the coast, but the figures for every other year show an appalling death-rate among Europeans at all stations on the slave and gold coasts. So far as can be judged from imperfect statistics, the Grain Coast and the British colonies of Sierra Leone and the Gambia, and also the region between the Niger Delta and the mouth of the Congo, are by comparison less deadly, but this is indeed faint praise. The stranger visiting the Gold Coast will at first be sorely puzzled by the similarity of the names of the natives, Every child takes its surname from the weekday of its birth, and strangers theirs from the day of their arrival, with an additional sobriquet descriptive of some personal peculiarity. For instance, a child born on Wednesday receives the name of that day of the week, Quaco. Quabina, Tuesday, and Quaco are held to be strong days of birth, but children that appear on Fridays, Saturdays, and Mondays are considered weak as water. Nothing will induce the Fanti to slip with his head toward the sea, or to take possession of a new dwelling-house on a Tuesday or Friday, both these days being regarded as unlucky for this purpose. Paternal affection and filial love apparently do not exist. The mother nurses her child for one or two years, and then it must shift for itself. There is no appearance of affection even between husbands and wives, 
war between parents and children and duncan an english traveller who visited the gold coast fifty years ago states that many parents offered to sell him their sons or daughters as slaves in common with many other natives of africa the fanti lives in close communion with the vague and mysterious beings of the unseen world a large proportion of his time is spent in consulting or appeasing the deities that inhabit the earth the air the sea the rivers and even trees sticks stones and bits of cloth if he is ill he believes that his ancestors are summoning him and he at once proceeds to consult the fetish man the latter is given a fee and is requested to present the sick man's excuses to the expectant shades these fetish priests generally exercise great influence over their superstitious fellows sometimes the departed is supposed to have returned to earth in the body of a child and yet remaining in deadland thus giving rise to the assertion by some travellers that the doctrine of metempsychosis obtains among the fantes they bury their dead in their houses choosing a room that can afterward be kept fastened up or secluded this custom the colonial authorities have attempted to abolish on sanitary grounds but the effort has not wholly succeeded so much homage did the egyptians pay to their dead that it was said that they lived in hades rather than on the banks of the nile so is it with the fantes constant sacrifices must be made to appease the departed and to remind them that they are not forgotten and it is part of the fanti belief that unless the custom is religiously observed the shade will wander on the banks of the sacred pra for the space of a hundred years before it has performed sufficient penance for its friend's neglect abonsam and sasabonsam are the two great deities conjured up by the fantis the former controls the wicked in the land of shades while the latter has his domicile on earth death is a matter of much moment and extravagant customs are held and heavy expenses incurred by the deceased relatives in order to satisfy the demands of the shade these orgies frequently being repeated at intervals in order to lay the ghost in case it becomes restive the rumbling of thunder is supposed to be the voice of the dead demanding propitiation and sacrifice and lightning as the direct infliction of the evil spirit on the person or object struck mourning is evidenced by shaving the head for a certain period and this is accomplished by bits of jagged stone or broken bottles there was a time when the fantis were the most powerful tribe of the gold coast but during the last century they have suffered so many crushing defeats from the ashantis that they have lost their national spirit and are regarded both by the british and by their hereditary enemies as arrant cowards land is held by individuals and families in severalty under well-recognized rules but boundary disputes are frequent and are generally determined by the memory of the oldest inhabitants the fantis are good artisans and make musical instruments instruments of torture they seem to the white man's ear and iron implements for agricultural purposes and they weave handsome cloths in narrow strips which are sewn together so as to make them of any size required children go naked up to their ninth or tenth year men of the upper and middle classes wear robes of manchester cotton in exactly the same manner as the romans wear the toga married women expose the upper half of their body and wear capacious cloths 
which are deftly fastened about the waist and hang below the knees maidens cover the breast and are much given to personal adornment as the shore is difficult to access from the sea so kumasi and the interior are difficult to access from the coast the country lies in the forest belt of the continent and the white man travels with difficulty the native can wend his way along the narrow path sleeping wherever nightfall may find him and eating from his own supply of kenki fuful or plantain but the white man must provide himself with hammock men if he would spare himself and carriers to transport his food supplies and paraphernalia in fact the necessary preparations for a trip of a few hundred miles through the average african hinterland are quite as extensive as for a trip around the world by the regular routes of travel for a week after landing at cape coast castle in january of last year i devoted my entire time to engaging carriers hammock men and attendants in this i was assisted by a fanti youth of sixteen years amoa by name who spoke fair english and a dozen native dialects in addition to his own tongue his grandfather a great war-chief enjoyed a pension of seven pounds a month from the british government for services rendered the colony in the ashanti war of eighteen seventy three to seventy four and this distinction gave amoa superlative standing both in his own estimation and that of his friends the distance from cape coast castle to kumasi is a hundred and forty-two miles and i pursued the identical route taken by the expedition of eighteen seventy four under sir garnet wolseley prasu a town of not less than ten thousand inhabitants is situated on the pra river seventy-two miles from the coast and this i reached at the end of ten days the road from the coast to this point has been through the Asin country a veritable wilderness of swamp and virgin forest the monotony of which was broken only by great bamboo groves and by stagnant pools of fetid water villages of from fifty to five hundred huts were passed at intervals of a few miles and in all of them the inhabitants proved hospitable and honest the pra which forms the southern boundary of the ashanti country is an insignificant stream whose course is frequently interrupted by rapids and shoals in the dry season it is navigable only a short distance from its mouth near chama thirty miles west of cape coast castle as water is a precious commodity on the gold coast particularly during the dry season the natives have imposed the term sacred upon it although it may have been in deference to the particular god which makes its habitat therein the path from prasu to kumasi threads its way through the adansai country for days at a time the light of the sun never pierces the gloomy forest and although the traveller is thus protected from the fierce tropical heat the damp atmosphere is most depressing forty miles south of kumasi is the mons or adansai hill stanley in eighteen seventy three roughly estimated its altitude at sixteen hundred feet but recent observations determine it to be but seven hundred it is an abrupt elevation and a hundred ashantis with modern guns could easily repulse ten thousand adversaries from its ragged slopes and passes on our fourteenth day out from the coast a small ashanti village within four miles of kumasi was reached my carriers insisted upon stopping here for an hour in order to prepare for an imposing entry into the capital of the ashanti kingdom 
when we resumed our journey we found the physical features of the country changing rapidly the forests had disappeared and we passed along a narrow road lined on either side with tall plantains and bananas until we emerged into an open plain covered with stubble over this plain our path led for some two hundred yards until the edge of the swamp which surrounds kumasi was touched a corduroy road made this easy of passage and we soon found ourselves marching up a slight incline that broadened into a wide street or avenue which as we afterward learned was the main street of kumasi the first glimpse was disappointing travellers from bowditch to winwood reed have described kumasi as a city of pretentious houses possessing a stone palace wherein the king lived in great splendour and containing a population variously estimated at from forty thousand to a hundred thousand but the first view convinced me that whatever kumasi may have been in the past it was now but a poorly built town of a few thousand huts later and more careful observations confirmed me in this estimate some writers assert that the fantis and ashantis originally occupied the country south of the conch mountains near the great bend of the upper niger the mohammedan tribes drove them south as far as the coast where they were forced to stop as the two peoples undoubtedly sprang from the same stock the natural boundaries of rivers and hills among other causes unknown to african history were probably the first dividing lines in their development as separate nations the languages of both are derived from the chi tongue and differ in only a few words and idioms their customs folklore and legends supernatural deities and fetish worship dress and physical characteristics are almost the same but the fanti through the civilizing influence of his contact with europeans extending over four centuries has abandoned many of the savage practices which still obtain among the ashantis for three centuries ashanti has maintained its existence as a confederation of powerful tribes acknowledging as its only rival the neighboring kingdom of dahomey from the beginning of the seventeenth century down to the present time its history is replete with bloody wars and mercenary incursions on weaker tribes and among the latter the fantis have felt its merciless heel only too often great britain has during the present century sent five expeditions against the shanty and with the exception of the last one with but little success in eighteen twenty four sir charles mccarthy governor-general of the british possessions on the gold coast led a large force of loyal natives as far north as mansu where the ashantis gave battle sir charles and his officers were captured and put to death their bones being distributed among the ashanti chiefs and sub-chiefs as talismans between eighteen twenty four and eighteen seventy three two other expeditions were dispatched against the ashantis by great britain but both of them were driven back to the coast in eighteen seventy four however sir garnet wolseley marched straight into kumasi at the head of only fourteen hundred troops among whom were the forty-second highlanders the famous black watch of the indian mutiny but although kumasi was sacked and burned the expedition accomplished little beyond inspiring the natives with a high opinion of british valour toward the end of eighteen ninety five 
the once powerful ashanti confederation had become greatly weakened by the open secession or wavering loyalty of its constituent tribes these were ten in number namely bekwai danyasi kokofu nkoranza dadiasi juabin mampon nkuanta nsuta and kumasi only three of these the most remote from the coast to the north of kumasi were openly loyal to the king of kumasi who held the throne or golden stool and was called the king of ashanti the other kings were quite ready to secede from the confederation the unity of which was now about to be attacked and destroyed by british arms and they were anxiously awaiting overtures from the coast such was the pitiable and humiliating condition of the ruler of heaven and earth at this time proud and arrogant to the last although abandoned by most of his followers king prempe calmly awaited the approach of the little band of british soldiers led by sir francis scott from cape coast castle he was however only a weak and misguided tool of the savage queen mother and a dupe of dishonest advisers and he offered no resistance to his seizure with some forty of his courtiers and his removal to the coast where he is now imprisoned in elmina castle thus kumasi fell without the shedding of a drop of blood though the deadly fever claimed its usual victims among them being prince henry of battenberg kumasi is about three miles in circumference oval in shape and is surrounded by a noisome swamp the main street runs north and south and is about a mile in length it is less than thirty yards in width and on either side are built the swish and thatch hats of the general aspect of those given in the accompanying illustration back of these two rows of hats are perhaps three thousand other hats allowing six or seven inhabitants to each hat the population may number but can hardly exceed twenty thousand there seemed no regularity of direction or plan in the streets or passageways between the huts and without a guide it would be difficult to find a given place in the extreme southeastern part of kumasi adjacent to the swamp is the king's palace it consists of a hundred huts grouped within a stockade thirty feet high this stockade gives way in places to the walls of two and even three-storied huts evidently erected under the direction of european captives the decorations on the walls of the palace both interior and exterior are crudely worked in clay in faint bar-relief and consist of grotesque figures of men and women hybrids with bodies of sheep goats elephants snakes deer and leopards combined with heads and tails of monkeys lizards and alligators on one hut i noticed the figure of a man holding in one hand a human head evidently his own as that member was missing from its proper place west of the main street and near its southern extremity is the sacred grove so graphically described by stanley and others as it existed prior to eighteen seventy four several hundred lofty cottonwood trees scattered over a rectangular space four acres in area thousands of bodies in all stages of decomposition and greening skulls gleaming white from their resting place scores of vultures hovering above or perched on the limbs of the trees waiting for the next human sacrifice such was the sacred grove at the beginning of eighteen ninety six dynamite however had materially altered its appearance before i left kumasi 
the great executioner an officer of high rank closely attached to the king's household presided here in his gruesome work while in recent years the practice of making human sacrifices in kumasi has been greatly checked by european influences the present executioner is chargeable with the taking of many thousands of human lives a number variously estimated at from twenty to fifty thousand during the thirty years of his tenure of office some time after the main body of the british expedition under sir francis scott had returned to the coast the executioner was captured and held as a prisoner in kumasi the british authorities believing that he knew where the golden stool the emblem of the king's office was hidden while he was thus detained i photographed him on several occasions and the picture reproduced in this article is from the best of these on the return journey to the coast i diverged from the main route in order to visit the king of Bekwai. i found him living in pomp and splendour at the town of Bekwai, the population of which is about half that of kumasi it has no characteristics dissimilar to those of the latter place lake busumakwe carefully explored in february eighteen ninety six by major donovan of the british army i spent two days in exploring but found nothing that major donovan had not noticed it is unnecessary to trace the real reasons that impelled the british government to subjugate ashanti and annex it to the gold coast colony a careful study of the history of the colony and its relations with its savage neighbours will throw much light on the subject but it is proper to assert that england's enlightened policy in other parts of africa will undoubtedly be applied here and will result in the ultimate spread of civilization throughout this darkest part of the dark continent in this connection it seems proper to call attention to a map of the british possessions in west africa published in november eighteen ninety five by stanford of london whereon before the expedition had left england ashanti was presented as a part of the gold coast colony the same map gives the half cape mount river as the boundary line between the english colony of sierra leone and liberia whereas it should have been the manoa river fifty miles further north End of section one.